You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How is everybody doing? Hey, we are so glad that you're here. Now, let me just tell you what happened. Last week, everybody got an extra hour of sleep. The 10 o'clock service got the extra hour of sleep during the service. They were sleepy. I gave them some encouragement, and it was the rowdiest 10 o'clock service we've ever had. And now I'm thinking, I think 10 is going to be better than 1130. I had that thought. I had that thought. And then I thought, not if I encourage 1130 appropriately to be like, we're going to laugh in the appropriate moments. We're going to give feedback in the appropriate moments. It can make your church experience up to 30% better. So four out of five pastors agree. So anyway, all right. Now, most of you know that I have three kids. Uh, My daughter Mia is 14, Xander is 12, and Livy is nine. And here's the thing that you know. Now, let me just ask this. How many of you are parents? Oh, wow, these are my people right here. Okay, very good. Now, you know this, that having your third child is so different than having your first. When you bring your first home, I mean, you are freaking out about everything. And I was so terrified. I remember driving home with Mia from the hospital. I was terrified. I remember asking the people, hey, can we, can we extend our stay? Like, can we just, is there anybody else checking in? And, and they were like, this isn't La Quinta or something. Like, you got to go. Like, you got to leave here. And so anyway, and we were nervous. So we get home and you know everything. When you have your first child, you get all, you put all this stuff on your registry. You got to get all, and because what you want is you get, everything has to be sterilized. Nothing can touch the floor. Everybody who holds your baby has to go through a 12-point background check. And, and then, you know, the more, the more kids you have, the looser that you get. And I realized this when I noticed my reaction to the same thing that would happen. Something simple like cereal falling on the floor. When Mia was little and, a, and she would spill a bowl of cereal, I would jump out of my seat. Don't worry, mama. Don't worry. I'm going to clean it up and I'm going to get you a fresh bowl. And, and I would. And then when Xander was born, I would, I would jump up and I would say, okay, buddy, we're going to clean this up together. And then we're going to get a new bowl together. And then when Livy was born and she spilled cereal on the floor, I'd say, Livy, your breakfast is on the floor. Eat it. <laughs> and, and so, and, and listen, and, but it's just true. It's like that. When Mia was born, we had all these things that we got. We got this contraption that could sterilize or sanitize everything. And so you would put the bottles and the pacifiers and all that in there. And if Mia's pacifier fell on the floor, we wouldn't give that back to her. That was ruined until we put it into this, you know, like that kind of chamber that turned, you know, Captain Rogers into Captain America. And so we kind of put that in there and then we'd give Mia a new one that had just come out of the sanitizer that had, you know, been cleaned down to the molecular level. And then when, when Xander was born, it's like, do we even want to turn that thing on? And so then we would just kind of run it under some hot water and then give him the pacifier back. And then when Livy's pacifiers hit the ground, it's like, do we want to get up? So like Livy's pacifier hit the ground, I'd be like, there you go. Or if it was really bad, if it was really bad, just put it in your mouth. But there you go. I don't know what just happened right there. If that was, 
that was the voice of disapproval or the voice of, it's disgusting, but we did it too. So, oh, I guess it was the second one. Very good. So I just wanted to make sure you're still my people. And so, and so, (laughs) but we do that. But I'm telling you, being a first time parent is so nerve wracking. We were so nervous about being, bringing Mia home that when we got her home, uh, she still had that. Remember when you bring a newborn home, they still have that, that ankle, you know, whatever house arrest thing that they, the bracelet that they put on her and like, oh, you just cut it off when you get home. And so I, I remember that Carrie, we got there, and I can show you the spot in our old house when we did this, and Carrie was holding Mia, and then I had the scissors, and I was so nervous about poking her with the scissors, and I'm like, okay, got to be careful, and then Carrie kind of moves her leg out, and then I'm kind of trying to cut the little bracelet thing, and so I go to cut it, and what I didn't realize is that I pinched her foot with the back of the scissors, and so she starts, Mia starts crying, and then Carrie starts crying, and then I start crying, and I'm like, we're not ready for this. And so, but here's what happens. What happens is, is that if you hang in there, it gets easier. And if you hang in there a little longer, it becomes a joy. And, and I, honestly, being a dad is one of the most fulfilling, joy-filled honors of my life. But I had no idea that I'd be any good at it on my first day. And that's just like most things in life, right? You know, sometimes we think if God has called us to something, that it should be easy. And I disagree. And I think the ease of something is never an indicator of God's calling or God's blessing. In fact, I've seen that people who give up, sometimes it just shows that they weren't really called to the thing that they were called to. Because when you have the call, Right When you have the call of God, you don't give up no matter what. Now, you might find a new strategy, you might find a new means, a new way, but you don't give up. Now, here's why I tell you all of this, is because we're starting a new journey here at Calvary. We're starting a brand new book of the Bible that we're teaching through, which is 2 Timothy, which is the Apostle Paul's final letter that he wrote before his death in 67 AD. Now, if you were with us in 1 Timothy, which we finished last week, you know that it's a totally different feel and tone. Uh, 2 Timothy is much more personal and somewhat heavier in content because Paul is essentially sharing his last will and testament with his son in the faith, Timothy. And if you remember, Timothy was pastoring a church in Ephesus, which was the second largest city in the Roman Empire. And there was a lot of confusion about what was true, right, and good in that culture, kind of like in our culture. But Paul's words were old school. Paul's words were like latitude and longitude, that you can chart the course of your life by them. And while 1 Timothy was about how the church should operate in a culture gone crazy, 2 Timothy was more internally focused about how to have faith that can withstand anything that comes your way. And Paul is writing these final words to Timothy, and none of the words are wasted. And if you've ever been with someone at the end of their lives, then you know that to be the case, that none of the words are wasted. Because every word has deep meaning because every word could be the last. And Paul, even at the end, wants to encourage Timothy because at this time, it's become very difficult to be a Christian in the world. In the year 64 AD, Emperor Nero, who was the Roman Roman Caesar, he burned the city of Rome. And the reason why he burned down much of the city of Rome is because he wanted to rebuild the city according to his liking. But the people revolted, and they were very upset. And so what Nero did is that he blamed the Christians and began pursuing, uh, persecuting them relentlessly. Christian leaders were rounded up and arrested. So naturally, the Apostle Paul was arrested and put in jail. Now, 
give you a little bit of background. If you read the book of Acts, and if you haven't, then I would encourage you, just read uh, chapters 20 through 28. And what you'll find is the, when Paul leaves the city of Ephesus, which is where Timothy is pastoring, and he takes a boat in a, in a town called Miletus, and he goes to Jerusalem. He goes to the temple, and there he gets arrested. He gets arrested, and he goes through this whole kind of series of kind of a kangaroo court, and he finally appeals to Caesar. And then the end of the book, chapters 27, 28, are Paul making his way from where he was being held in Caesarea all the way to Rome, where he gets there at the end, he's put on what basically, it says he's put under guard, but it's basically what we would call house arrest. He has his own home that he's able to live in as he waits for his day before the emperor, which he got. It just took about two years for it to happen. And he stood before a very young Caesar Nero, who, if you're not aware, became emperor of Rome at only 16 years old. The emperor heard Paul's case and let Paul go. But apparently he didn't forget Paul because when they were rounding up Christian leaders and they were getting arrested, Paul was thrown into prison. But this time it was not house arrest. He was thrown into what's called the Mamertine prison in Rome. In fact, if you ever go to Rome, uh, the Mamertine prison is still there. In fact, I'll show you a couple pictures of it. So this is the actual prison. What, the reason why you see this uh, hole here with the, with the grate over it is because that's the street level, and then the prison is underneath. This is the cells, the cells you didn't walk into. The cells were things that you were thrown into. And so just we have, there's, someone did a rendering of it. So this is the street level. You have Roman guards, and then you were thrown into this hole. Now, here's the thing you have to know about the Mamertine prison. There was no water. There was no food. There was no sanitation, and there was no limit on how many people were thrown into the prison. And so now you have uh, the, this, this, the Mamertine prison is now under control of the Catholic Church, and that's why there's an altar there. that's uh, kind of panned, but you can't see it. This is where that opening would be that we saw. Now, the reason why the cross is there that's upside down is because for centuries, uh, the upside-down cross was a Christian symbol. I mean, for centuries. Uh, the reason being is that Peter, the apostle, was thrown into this same prison when he was executed. Now, Paul was killed via beheading. Peter was killed uh, via crucifixion. But when they were going to crucify him, he said that he didn't want to be uh, cruci- uh, die like his Lord, that he didn't feel worthy. So the Romans obliged him, and they crucified him upside-down. So the upside-down cross, or what's called in Latin the Petrine cross, was synonymous as a symbol of humility for centuries. Now it's used by atheists and devil worshipers, and, you know, they just ruin everything. And, uh, and so, but it wasn't always that way. So Paul is in this dungeon awaiting execution, and he still has the desire to write his son in the faith a letter, and the topic shouldn't surprise us. He wants to tell Timothy to be courageous in these opening verses because the times were difficult. And it's a message for all of us that we need Christians who are courageous and who are willing to stand under pressure because tough times will come. And sometimes, listen, instead of, and sometimes we do that, we just pray for things to be easier. Sometimes God wants us to pray for us to be stronger so that we can withstand anything. And so we're going to begin 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 1. And here's what we read. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, a beloved son, 
grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, if you pause there and and give me your attention, if we're going to talk about how to be courageous, then there's three things we need to look at in these verses. The first is this, if you're a note taker, and that is I need to remember I'm called by God. Now, here's the thing that happens if you're someone who's read the Bible, is that sometimes we get to these letters and we just kind of skim the opening verses thinking, oh, it's the who it's from, who it's for, hey, hope things are going well. And, And we can miss this opening thought that he's setting forth that sets the tone of the entire book. Paul says that he is an apostle of Jesus. Some letters he says by the commandment of God, but this he says by the will of God. And the point that he's making is that this wasn't something that he thought up. This wasn't something that he did on his own. He's an apostle and a Christian leader because it was God's will for his life. Now, one of the things that we tend to do as Christians is that we pray for God's will because we're asking God what he wants us to do. And and that's good. But one of the things I've noticed that a lot of times what God wants to do is not show us what he wants us to do. God is trying to show us who he wants us to be. And if we will get the who he wants us to be right, the what God wants us to do becomes much easier. Paul is in prison because he's an apostle. And he's accepting that the current suffering that he's experienced is because of the will of God, not because he has missed it. And my friends, the thing that's important for us to know is that sometimes we have this idea that if God is in it, then it's going to be all good times, green lights, and 72 degree weather. And, and that's, that's not real life. In fact, in chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is going to say these words, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Because to be a Christian in first century Rome was an invitation to suffer. So why did they do it? If there was an invitation to suffer, it's because they saw a dead man come back to life. And that message changed the world then, and it's still changing the world now. And the problem that we have, honestly, if we're being honest, as Christians in America, is that being a Christian has never really cost us anything. The closest thing we've ever gotten to persecution is a guy in Colorado being told to bake a cake for a gay couple. We're like, wow, the guy's being persecuted. Like, uh, now, while I agree with the baker's conviction, and by the way, why a gay couple would want someone to bake the cake who doesn't like their wedding, I don't understand that either. But, um, but let's be honest, while I agree with the baker's conviction, persecution isn't usually flavored with buttercream, all right? And so, and this is the thing, so why does suffering happen? And there's many reasons, I think. God is always doing several things at once. But one of the reasons that we're going to explore here is that sometimes suffering happens because it produces endurance and it produces perseverance in us. You know who understands perseverance better than anyone? Your kids. Your kids know that perseverance is the name of the game. That's why your kids are relentless. And they know that if they will just keep asking, oh, my parents said no, (laughs) They said no this time. (laughs) They know that if you just, they ask another thousand times, they will wear mom and dad out and be like, what do you want? You want a helicopter, a bag of money, and a trip to Cuba? I'll do it. Just stop. You know, and it's like, you'll say yes because you're just wiped out. And so I'll I'll tell you what happened. So this is, I, I had this conversation with my son recently, is that about two years ago, my son, or he saw this video on YouTube, and he ordered the world's largest stress ball. You know those little stress balls that are, you know, maybe the size of a baseball? Well, this one was like the size of a kickball. It was the world's largest stress ball. I don't know why. I don't know if at the age of 10 he had a lot of stress in his life. And uh, so, 
But here's what happened is that the last time that he had ordered something, he and his younger sister, they had teamed up. They were going to order a few things. And then they were like, okay, so here's the money. And it was like 20 bucks or something. And then I said, okay, well, then there's the shipping cost. And they're like, wait, what's shipping? And I'm like, hey, the postman wants to get paid too. And so they said, well, is there a free option? I said, yeah, there's a, there's a free shipping option because you spent above the threshold, but it's going to take some time. You're paying with time. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we don't care when it gets here. You know, <laughs> yeah, okay. So you know what happened after they shipped it? I literally, we clicked it. And they're like, okay, when's it going to get here? Like, dude, I don't know. Every day. Hey, dad. Yeah. Do you know where the shipment is? And I'm like, I don't know. Do I look like the postmaster general to you? And, and then they, they, they would every day, like, can, you see, can we see a map to know where it is? And I'm like, I don't know. It's somewhere between Missouri and here. And I, I can't be any more specific than that. So anyway, the day that he go, and they just, they wouldn't stop. I was ready to drive to Missouri myself and just be like, hey, can we just do this like a drive-through situation? I need this out of my life. And so anyway, so then uh, that he goes to order the stress ball. And I already know what's coming. And he's like, all right, well, you know what? I'll just do the free shipping option. You know, it wasn't that long last time. Like, it was like the longest six days of my life. And so... Anyway, so he's like, hey, uh, do we know when it's going to get here? And I'm like, you know, Zan, um, I took the liberty of upgrading your shipping, uh, your shipping to Express. Uh, it'll be here in two days. And, and, and he's like, wow, that's amazing. And they didn't charge extra? Like, no, they didn't. Just <laughs> things work out that way. And, and I decided that I was going to pay an extra 10 bucks for my own sanity's sake. And so, because the last thing I want to know is like, hey, when's DHL getting here? I don't know. And if I had the stress ball, maybe I wouldn't be stressed out about it, but I'm waiting for it to get here. And listen, and, the, and once again, the point is this, is that are we willing to persevere and just be relentless? And if, if we can be honest, now, once again, just listen to what I'm saying. I know sometimes, ah, that's offensive. It's not offensive if you listen to what I'm saying, all right? Sometimes, some of the prayers that we pray, if we're being honest, some of the prayers that we pray will just kind of resolve themselves anyway, right? Lord, help Pepito do good on his test. Lord, help Pepito get over that sniffle. Lord, bless our family. We're praying for good weather. And, and once again, if you want to pray for that, it's fine. Nothing wrong with it. But listen, if we're being honest, sometimes some of our prayers are kind of lame. And, and, and that's why, listen, that's why sometimes we give up when we pray. Because if the prayer will not move us, how do we expect it to move the heart of God? But see, if we pray a prayer and we will not give up, we pray a prayer that we say, Lord, I am doomed to fail if you don't show up. God, I believe that you're leading me, but you got to show up or this thing is going to be a total disaster. And, and, but I, I'm, it matters this much. Listen, when you have a prayer that you will stay up late praying for, that you'll be praying about, all throughout the day, and you will not stop, and as long, until God answers, you're still not going to stop. If you do that, you might have a prayer that God wants to answer and do something special. But sometimes, listen, we just pray for three times, we pray three times and give up, and if that's the case, why, why would God move? It just shows that maybe we don't really care about it that much either. But the fact that we're asking for things that are bigger than us and beyond us, and we will not let go, that is the kind of heart that God is looking for. One of the passages that I talked to my kids about, and my son and I were talking about this recently um, before 
he went to bed, and we were talking about this, and it's, it's one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. It's in the book of Second Chronicles chapter 16, which it's a prophet named Hanani. He's talking to Asa, who was the king of Israel uh, at the time, and he says this. He says to the king, he says that the eyes of the Lord are running to and fro throughout the entire earth, looking for hearts who are loyal to him, that he might show himself strong on their behalf. And I, and I, was, I was telling my, my kids that in reference to that, is that that's the kind of heart that God is looking for. You want God to do big things in your life? You want God to do amazing things in your life? You, got, you want God to just answer some, some you know, big prayers in your life? Then ha- God is actively looking for people whose hearts are loyal to him that he might show himself strong on their behalf. And listen, this is when you decide that what you're doing is by the will of God, say, look, God put me here. I know he did, and I'm gonna withstand anything because my heavenly father has placed me here. And until he gives me new marching orders, I'm here. That's a life that God can not only do great things for, it's a, it's a life that God can do great things through. Well, then he goes on in verse three, he says this, I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did, as without ceasing, I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you being mindful of your tears that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. And if you pause there and give me your attention, if if you want to be the man without fear, then you got to remember that you're called by God. And the second thing is that you need to hear godly encouragement. I don't want us to miss something powerful because Paul is showing us how encouragement works. He's showing us not just how he's encouraging Timothy, but how we should be encouraging one another. And that if you want to be an encourager, this is how you encourage. And if you want to be encouraged, this is what you want to hear. Because when we talk about encouragement, we're not talking about random motivational quotes like, you know, you got this, hashtag motivation Monday, right? That's not what he's saying. And maybe that has its place, but that's not biblical encouragement. The thing about encouragement, let me just tell you this, is that encouragement costs nothing, but it means everything. The right encouragement at the right moment can change people. The right encouragement at the right moment can cause uh, people to keep going, to cause people to refocus, to remind someone that what they're doing matters or remind them that they matter. Because the reality is, is that we live in a world that is completely encouragement depleted. You ever, you notice that, right? You turn on the television and it's depressing. And then you go on, you know, you go online and it's just negativity and sarcasm and things that discourage us. And that's why, listen, and I, 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 I share this all the time, but if you want to be someone who has lots of friends, right? Here's what you do. Be an encouraging person because people naturally gravitate towards People who are encouraging because all of us want to be encouraged by those that we love and care about. Now, and, and once again, but the challenge is, is that it's not just like, hey man, you're doing great. Like that's, that's cool, but that's not a specific encouragement. And that's the thing about biblical encouragement is specific. Uh, when my son was about four years old, he was, and my wife is so amazing teaching our kids to read so early. My son knew how to read before he knew how to talk. And that was, it was amazing. But, um, and I don't know how she worked that one out, but that's just how amazing she is. But uh, when my son was four, he was reading at a second grade reading level. 
So we were on a Disney trip years and years ago, and he was, we were in Epcot, and we were in the Nemo ride, and then after, you know, you get out of the ride, and then there's like that little aquarium. And so he's reading all of the signs, and then every fish tank and what fish are in there, and this lady that's next to me, she's freaking out. She's like, I can't believe how well he's reading. And how old is he? And I said, oh, he's four. And she's like, wow, I'm not even going to tell you my daughter's age because she's not even reading that well. well. I found out she was 17. And so, no, I'm just kidding. No, although that would have been something to the story though, right? And so now, but so that night he's going to bed and I tell, and I tell Xander and I tell Xander that story. And I, and I say to him and I'm like, Xander, I'm so proud of you. You are a great reader. And I dreamed someday of having a son, and you are better than what I had dreamed of. And anyway, my Xander says, he says, oh, thanks, Dad. And I always dreamed of having a dad like you, a dad with very little hair. And I wasn't sure if it was an encouragement or a troll. And, uh, but say what you want, at least it was specific. And... Now, here's the thing that Paul is very specific about when he's encouraging Timothy, is that he says, and once again, it's not just like a random platitude that you find in your job's HR office. He says this, he says, Timothy, here's what I want to encourage you in, that you have genuine faith. Literally in the Greek, it's an unhypocritical faith. And it's real because he says, and not just that he says, yeah, you have an unhypocritical, you have a genuine faith, but now he's backing it up. He's saying, because listen, I knew your grandmother, Lois. I knew your mom, Eunice, and they were believers. They had genuine faith, and they raised you to have genuine faith as well. In fact, when we get to chapter 3, he's going to say this. He says, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And then Paul says, listen, your grandmother had great faith, your mom had great faith, and you have great faith too. And Paul is giving us this model for encouragement, and that is to be an encourager. Can, can I just tell you this? That it's not like, are you an encourager or not? The problem is you probably think of this stuff all the time. You see someone do something nice, like, wow, man, they're always going out of their way for people. And then you're like, all right, moving on. And it's like, now here's what you got to do. You got to think that, and then you got to say something about it. Because we think it sometimes, but we don't ever actually verbalize it. And here's why this is important. I think why this was such a a core value for Paul is that when Paul became a Christian, no one would touch him with a 10-foot pole. Remember, Paul was a persecutor of Christians before coming to Jesus. And then, and you can read it in Acts chapter 9, that the the, the Christians, they didn't want anything to do with them because they thought this was some kind of like, you know, ancient episode of Undercover Boss where he's going to go into the church and be like, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. By the way, you're all under arrest. And so... They're like, we're not going to, we don't want anything to do with that. And so he was kind of out and, and there was a guy named Barnabas that searched him out. And once again, you can read this in Acts chapter 13. And the guy named Barnabas searched him out, found him and gave Paul his start in ministry. Barnabas's name means this, son of encouragement. You see that Paul at the beginning of his ministry needed a little bit of encouragement and someone believing in him enough so he could get started. And now at the end of his life, he's taking the opportunity to encourage someone at the beginning of their ministry. And that's my hope for us is that we would be encouragers. And you know, how do, you, like, oh, how do I become an encourager? Here's what you do. Start noticing things. 
You see, we encourage people by saying things that are specific, not just like, hey, good job. I mean, good, it's better than nothing, but be a little bit more specific than that, right? Husbands, listen, telling your wife you love her is important. Telling your wife why you love her is encouragement. And that's why one of the things that I tell my wife all the time, and uh, I, I'd say, I love you because you make everything better. She does. She, make, she is the bacon of humanity. She makes everything better. Now, that might be a weird illustration unless you're a lover of bacon and then you know. Um, but it is. And, and she just, she makes everything better. And it doesn't matter if you're here at church. It doesn't matter if you're at a movie. It doesn't matter if you're watching a TV show. It doesn't matter if you're just having a conversation. She makes everything better. It makes everyone better. And sometimes it's intentional. Other times it's totally by accident because she's just beautiful and charming. That's just how it is. And so uh, the first time my wife ever posted on social media, now my wife is not really a social media person, but the first time my wife ever posted on social media was uh, through my Facebook account because we heard that a, a friend of ours had lost a family member. And so my wife goes on there and writes, hey, this is Carrie posting from Bob's account and we are so sorry for your loss, LOL, send. And then, and I'm like, woman, what did you just write? And she's like, oh, I just wanted them to know that we were thinking about them. And I'm like, okay, um, do you know what the word LOL means? She said, yeah, lots of love. And I'm like, no, that's not what it means. I said, you just told them we're so sorry for your loss. <laughs> and she's like, you know, anyway, so you can imagine, like, no, delete, delete. And uh, so, <laughs> no, <laughs> it's great. And so we have, this, um, we have this chalkboard in our kitchen, and the chalkboard just says, I love you because. And every week or so, we just write something, as whatever, it, whatever it is. And it could be something funny or something silly or something serious. So uh, I'll tell you, when we first moved into our house, we, uh, my wife ordered from Uber Eats for the first time. And so she ordered from Chipotle. And so you can already hear her laughing because this is where this is going. Anyway, it's great. It's a great story. It just, once again, just shows you just how wonderful she is. And, uh, and so she orders, and she's like, oh, I want to make sure we get chips and salsa. And then, uh, so we order the meals, and she's like, oh, I'm going to order extra chips and salsa. So she orders some chips and salsa, and then she or, and then, uh, but she didn't realize that all the meals already came with chips and salsa. So when the Uber Eats guy shows up, he shows up with, like, giant bags of food. And I'm like, woman, what did you do? And she's like, nothing. I ordered a meal for each of us. She didn't realize that she had ordered 11 bags of chips. <laughs> for the next week, every meal that we ate had chips and salsa. And so, and it was fabulous. And so my son Xander, my son Xander, he walked by, he erased the I love you because, and, uh, and she wrote, I, and he wrote, I love you because you eat chips and salsa. And so, and once again, and, 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 here's, and here's my point, right, is that when you're really going to encourage, it's, it, it forces you to be specific. And so you say something specific, and it just in, in encourages us because we know it's real. I write this verse in, in cards to my wife sometimes, but I love this in Proverbs 31. It says, her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. And here's the encouragement. Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. Parents, can I tell you something? This is a gift that you give your children. 
don't, don't tell them that they can be any. You can be anything, honey. You can be anything you want to be. Why? Because it's not true. They can't, right? Because you can't. Because you're not good at everything. And instead, you have specific gifts and talents, and that's awesome. I have specific gifts and talents, and that's great. But we're not good at everything. And that no matter how hard I try, I will never be a world-class ballerina, right? And I don't have to be. But when a parent speaks a specific encouragement into the lives of their kids, listen, the life of those kids begins to take shape. And you may not know this, but you know, mom and dad, you are the loudest voice in the lives of your kids. So use that voice to speak encouragement, to speak vision into their lives. Listen, I believe one of the reasons, and there may be more than one, of course, but I believe it's one of the reasons why over 70% of college students change their major within the first two years of, of being in college. And, and, and you, you can imagine how much of a time waster that is. And it's like, I took that class with this major. Now it doesn't count for this one. And, and, and once again, there may be other reasons, but I can assure you one of them is that no one spoke into their lives specifically what they saw. Because when you as a parent will speak a vision and encouragement into your kids' lives, you are helping their world and their future come into focus. Because you're saying to them, I've been watching your life, and as the person who knows you best and loves you most, this is what I see. My friends, this is a priceless gift we can give our kids, and it's a gift we all need, and it's a gift that is completely free. But listen, we go through difficult seasons and in difficult seasons, we need encouragement and we need to be reminded of the promises of God that are available to those who love him. And that's why he says this in verse six when he goes on. He says, therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. If you want to be the man without fear, then here's the last thing. I need the courage to be bold. Now, this is a famous verse, right? Verse 7, and it's used in all kinds of situations. But as we do here at Calvary, I always tell you, people use this for anything, right? But what is the context of this? What is the context of the verse within the scope of the chapter, the theme of the book? And this verse is really about using your gifts and not being a coward, Paul tells Timothy to stir up the gifts of God that is in him and, not, and literally not fear or, or literally uh, have cowardice control him and keep him from God's will in his life. Why? Because being courageous assumes there's a level of fear. And the goal is not to remove all fear from your life. It's to live boldly in spite of your fears. And so fear should never keep us from what God has called us to do. And that's why he says God hasn't given you a spirit of fear, literally a spirit of cowardice. Because fear is not the final word on what we do or why we do it. When the early followers of Jesus were arrested and beaten, you know what they prayed for? They did not pray that things might be easier. Look at what they prayed for. This is in Acts chapter 4. He says, Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. They didn't allow fear to control them. Were they afraid? Uh, It might be because you don't pray for boldness to go into an ice cream shop. Right, I mean, unless you're lactose intolerant. Um, but you pray for boldness when there's a level of danger. And listen, cowards simply allow fear to control their lives. And followers of Jesus can be courageous because they live with an understanding that God is close. That's why Paul says God hasn't given us a spirit of cowardice, 
that the presence of God should be empowering your life. So it's defined by these three things, power, love, and a sound mind. The word power is the Greek word dunamis, where we get our English word dynamite. It's a dynamic power to do what God has called us to do. The word love is the word agape. It's an unconditional love with pure motives. And a sound mind is literally a disciplined mind. And when you are empowered by the Holy Spirit and you are filled with an authentic love and you have a disciplined mind that isn't ruled by emotions or fear, then God can do anything in your life because nothing is stopping you. You see, fear robs you of being empowered because what do you know what fear does? It makes you feel weak. Fear robs you of love because all you think about when you're afraid is self-preservation. Fear robs you of a sound mind and a disciplined mind and it carries you on this emotional roller coaster and doesn't let you out of its grip. That's why Proverbs chapter 14 in the message, which is a paraphrase, says a sound mind makes for a robust body, but runaway emotions corrode the bones. And here's what you know, and maybe we've forgotten, is that we know how to control our emotions. I'm not saying we always do, but we know how to control them. We sometimes just don't. Now, how many of you are married, if I can ask that question? All right, so you know, you're going to know this. Now, I don't need to ask if you've ever been in an argument. That's built into the first question, all right? So, but here's what I'm willing to bet, is that you've been in a disagreement with your spouse, and you've been piping mad, going back and forth at some point, and then the phone rings, and a miracle takes place. You change completely, Right? Right, you said, let me tell you, no, that's not what happened. Let me tell you. Hello? Uh-huh. Praise the Lord, really? Oh, man, God bless you. I just pray God's rich blessings in your life. Okay, see you soon. Jesus loves you too, okay. And the other thing, you know, and so, and what happens? Why? Because you can answer the phone and sound like Mr. Rogers, and yet, but once again, We have the ability to control our emotions, but sometimes we don't. And once again, sometimes there's deeper reasons as to why we don't and whatnot. But Paul is telling us that instead of letting fear control us and lead us astray, what we can do instead, a disciplined mind, will trust the word of God, will trust the promises of God as we take steps where he wants us to go. And we've got to decide if we're going to be fearful or we're going to be faithful. You see, when we talk about courage or fear or boldness. I mean, the most famous story in the Bible, of course, is the story of David and Goliath. And although most of us have probably heard the story, what a lot of us don't know is how the story started. The story started, David wasn't even there. Instead, David gets approached by his dad and says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take these 10 big wheels of cheese and bread, and I want you to take them to your brother's because his seven older brothers were serving in Saul's army, in the Israeli army, to fight against their enemies, the Philistines. David shows up with the bread, with the cheese, and he hears the things Goliath has said, and then he decides that he's going to be the one to take Goliath on. Now, once again, we read the story, and we're like, yeah, that's what happens. But have you ever wondered, like, hold on, this kid has never been in a fight. At least we, didn't, we don't realize it. That's what Saul thinks, the king. And nobody, these are all trained warriors, trained soldiers, and no one wants to go into the valley to fight this giant. But David somehow has the courage where the others don't. And we could think like, well, it's just, maybe he's just ignorant. He has this kind of like ignorant 
courage, not realizing what he's getting into. And then you read the passage and you find something different. Look at what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 17. We'll see it up on the screen. He says, Then David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're a youth, and he's a man of war from his youth. You know what he's saying? He's saying, you're a kid, and this guy's been fighting as longer than you've been alive. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose, again, it arose against me, I caught it by its beard, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. How could David be so courageous to want to fight the giant when every other sane person was saying, I'm not getting anywhere near that. Here's how. Because he had been in situations before. And when you find yourself and people like, man, I don't know how you can trust God in this situation. Here's what you've said. You've said, see, but I've been in tough situations before. And I've trusted God. And so when this situation came up, I realized that God had been preparing me for this moment the whole time. David had been in the field keeping his father's sheep. And when a lion or bear tried to take one of them, David would attack it. Attack the lion, attack the bear, and kill it. Now, listen, while I'm not a shepherd, I'm sure that uh, in the traditional sense, I'm sure David's dad would have understood that, you know, if a few sheep got eaten by wild animals, and my guess is that within the financial structure of the sheep business, that there is a line item for loss due to accidental death or first-degree murder by the hand of an animal. And so, so David's dad isn't going to say anything. We know the sheep aren't going to say anything about them being carried away by a lion or bear. There's not, no, they're not showing up on the news being like, David's been a bad boy. All right? <laughs> so nobody's saying that. But here's what happened. Here's the key. is that moments of private faithfulness led to public exaltation. Did you catch it? That moments of private faithfulness led to public exaltation. David became the champion of Israel because he was willing to trust God when no one was looking. And those moments led to victory when the greatest challenge came. So what am I asking you today? I'm asking you to take on the lion and take on the bear. I'm asking you to pick up a stone and realize that the living God is with you and that faith and fear are both presenting you a picture of the future. And you've got to decide which picture you're going to believe. And the difference is that fear wants to keep you bound, it wants to keep you alone, it wants to keep you stuck. And faith in the Lord Jesus wants to set you free because faith isn't asking you to be weak. Instead, faith wants to empower you to be strong. Faith isn't asking you to be only concerned about yourself. Faith is inviting you to love others boldly, knowing that love never fails. Faith isn't asking you to be ruled by fickle emotions, creating a false picture of reality. Instead, faith wants to give you wisdom and a disciplined mind. Faith wants to show you how the giants fall in your life. But here's what it takes. What it takes is trusting and believing that if I take on the lion 
and I take on the bear, God is preparing me for the giant when he shows up. My friends, God isn't trying to wipe you out. Just the contrary. God is trying to get you ready to kill a giant. And listen, after David killed the giant, his entire life came into focus. His entire future came into focus. And like David, when you kill your giant, it will set you up for everything that God has for you in your life. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you for that promise. We want to thank you that you're encouraging us to step out in power and love and a disciplined mind. And so God, our hope and prayer is that we would be people who are faithful in private, that it would lead to public exaltation as you do what only you can do in our lives. So I pray, I pray for everyone in the sound of, that can hear the, my voice right now, that you would empower us and encourage us to live not by fear, but by faith, that we, are, we can take on the lion, we can take on the bear, and that that would be the preparation for when the big hurdles of life come. So Lord, I pray that you would do that work in each and every one of us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. 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 Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.